Happy Easter! I am so excited to be able to celebrate Easter with you this morning. I recognize that today is one of those days that perhaps, perhaps you're at church today because your family dragged you to church. It's one of those holidays that people just kind of make you come to church. And I want you to know, if that's you, I want you to know, I see you. I see you. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you something for free. I'm going to give you a little bit of tip. All right, Here, here's a little tip for you. Uh, if you are sitting in your, your, your seat and you're kind of getting a little tired, maybe the, the eyes are getting a little heavy, and you start doing the little head nod, you know, where you drop down, you're like, wake, you know. Uh, if that's you, here's what I want you to do. One of those times when your head begins to nod, just throw your head up, put your hand up, open your eyes and say, amen. Let me tell you what, your family will think you are so spiritual. They'll say, he's praying. The people around you will say, he's filled with the spirit. That's for you today. That is free. You can try it. It'll work. I promise you. I've been doing it for you. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> My name is Pastor Kevin. I am so excited to be able to worship with you, whether you are with us today in person or whether you're worshiping with us online. Uh, today's a great day to celebrate. And so uh, thank you for being here at Restoration Church. You know, years ago, uh, years ago, we had this sick minivan. It was, uh, can you picture it? It was, a, it was a sick old minivan. It was golden color. We had those 10-inch rims, you know, and 150 horsepower. You get that thing going downhill, you could really get it going, right? I know some of you guys are, are like, seriously, you were a sissy and drove a minivan? Hey, don't judge me. I do it for love. We had five kids. That's kind of what we do. So we drove that minivan for, for several years. And finally, a couple years later, um, I got a man card and I got a Suburban. It was great. It was a highlight of my life. And uh, so what do we do is we put that van on Craigslist, put it on Craigslist. Now, I know some of you are a better salesman than I am. I'm, I'm not a great salesman. And so I had to really psych myself up. I'm, I'm going to meet a guy. I'm going to meet him at Safeway on 16th and Lincoln. I'm, I'm going to sell him the van. So I'm psyching myself up. I'm like, all right, here's all the work that's been done on the engine. Here's all the paperwork. Like, like I'm going to sell this guy. This car is good for another 100,000 miles. So I show up. And he's there. And the first thing I say is, you want me to pop the hood so you can hear the engine? And he goes, no, no, no. How does the radio work? Does the radio, do all the stations on the radio work? And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, the radio works fine. Here, here's all the paperwork from all the stuff we've done. And that's cool. But, but how many speakers does uh, your van have in it? And I'm like, I, I don't know. They've got like little one and a half inch subwoofers or something like that. I don't know. And I'm like, well, here, look at the tires. The tires are new. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. How's the base? Now, when you're selling a car, like, like what's the first, what's the most important thing about the car? It's the engine. The engine. But this guy wasn't concerned about the engine. So all of a sudden, I'm like, I got this. I got this. I'm like, here, man. Here, come have a seat in the driver's seat. And I'm like, roll that window down and put your hand on, out the window and, and take that other hand and just drop it over the, la the, the, the steering wheel and lean back. How's that feel, man? Can you turn up the music? How's that feel? Feels pretty good. To I sold that car to that guy. All about the radio. It was great. I was so proud of myself. Amen to that. <laughs> Waking up. <laughs> it is our nature. Sometimes in human nature, we have this tendency to allow things that are less important to be taken a higher priority. And we kind of take maybe some things that are more important and push them down and put other things up more importantly. This is true sometimes with cars, and this is true 
as well as in our faith and in our Christianity. In fact, when you think about church, when you think about church and Christianity, what do you think Christians, what do you think the church is known for? Let me ask this a different way. What is it the church, what is it that the church talks the most about? It's a great question. What is the church known for? Are we known for our morality and how we expect other people to follow our morality? Are we known for our politics and how our faith should impact our politics? Are we known for our sexuality and the way that we view sexuality? Are we known for having the really cool, hip pastor who tells funny jokes? Like, what is, what is the church known for? Because all of those things are there, but are they of first importance? Are they the most important thing that the church ought to be known for? This morning, Hudson read for us a passage out of the book of 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians is actually a book in the Bible. It's a letter written by a guy who's the name of the Apostle Paul. And really what Apostle means is he was a church planter. He planted a number of churches and had these relationships with the churches. And so he writes this letter to a church in the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, a church probably similar to ours and a culture somewhat like ours. And he writes this letter to answer some questions that the church is dealing with, some, some things that the church is not quite getting right or not understanding. He writes this letter to answer that. And again, they're a church in a culture that's not unlike ours, where sometimes the church had a hard time figuring out what's of most importance. Sometimes they allowed these other things, like the car radio, to become more significant than the engine of the car. And so Paul addresses that. He's going to clarify for that church in Corinth, as well as for Restoration Church, as well as for all of Christianity. He's going to clarify what is of first importance for Christianity. I don't know what your church experience has been like. I don't know what your church background is, but I want you to hear today of what is first importance, which is not our morality. It's not our politics. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's how Paul starts out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried and raised on the third day according to Scripture. Paul makes it clear for us, for those listening. He says, what's first importance is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul wants to emphasize how important it is. He says a few verses later in verse 19 of chapter 15, he says, listen, if the resurrection is not real, then our Christianity is pointless. It's worthless. There's no reason for us to follow Jesus in Christianity if the resurrection did not happen. See, Christianity at its core, we need to grasp this. Christianity at its core is not just a, a moral code. It's not a, a philosophy for how we live our lives. It's not a way to, to bring life together. It's not a political alignment. At its core, Christianity is all about the good news of what God has accomplished for us through the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So often... The message of Christianity, though, the message of the church, it gets watered down. And we allow some of these lesser things to become higher important. We start talking about the radio and the bass and, and those things instead of talking about what is most important. So I want to be clear this morning. I want to be clear that here at Restoration Church, this is a message that we stand on. This is a message we want the church to be known for. Not, you need to clean up your life. 
Not that you need to give money. Not that you need to try harder. The message I want you to hear from Restoration Church is that Jesus died for you. Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered Satan and sin and death and hell and the worst of those Satan could throw at him. That is our primary message. Everything else, everything else is secondary to that. Now, I know that we start talking about the resurrection. Some of us will begin to have some doubt and say, okay, well, that's great. That's what the church is about, the resurrection. Let me ask this. How do I know that the resurrection really happened? How can I know that the resurrection really happened? I mean, we don't have a context for that, right? It's hard to, to grasp because dead men, they don't walk out of the grave. We don't see that happen in our day and age. In fact, even Jesus' friends struggled believing in this idea of the resurrection. Jesus, he's with his disciples and he says, guys, three times, three times he says, guys, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the grave. And the disciples are like, what? What do you mean? I don't get that. I don't grasp that. I can't, I, can't, I can't figure that out in my mind. It doesn't make sense. And because Paul recognizes that the resurrection is going to be hard for us to believe, he gives us a couple of evidences for the resurrection so that we can know the resurrection is real, so we can know it's true. The first piece of evidence that Paul gives is fulfilled prophecy. This is what he says in verse 3 and verse 5. He says, these things will happen according to Scripture, according to God's Word, according to the Bible. You see, in the Bible, over history, we have, we have thousands of years of, of, of these foreshadows, the, the, these, these prophecies about the coming Messiah, about what's going to happen to Jesus. And there's all these prophecies. This is what's going to happen to Jesus. Things like this. There's over 300 of these prophecies. Let's say Jesus is going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. They say Jesus is going to live a life without sin. They, they, they say Jesus is going to be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. It even foreshadows and says this is how, this is a mode of, of death that Jesus is going to suffer through crucifixion being hung on a tree says he's going to be laid in a rich man's tomb. Scripture foretells and says after three days he will rise from the grave. And what's amazing is you think about all these prophecies, what do you think the likelihood of, of Jesus fulfilling every one of these prophecies? In fact, I tried to get a, get a picture for us. How, we all like to go on those Easter egg hunts, right? We had a great Easter egg hunt. I can't speak, I speak for a living. We had a great Easter egg hunt yesterday at Madison House. It was great seeing all these kids going across the field. But let's just say, let's just say that we had an Easter egg hunt here. But let's just say we, we spread it out over all of the state of Washington. We hid all the eggs. We hid a lot of eggs. Let's say we hid enough eggs that um, the eggs were stacked seven feet tall. All across the state of Washington. Okay? That's a lot of eggs. Now let's say I blindfolded you and said there's one golden egg. You need to go and find it. What do you think the likelihood of you going and finding that single egg spread out all across the state? Now imagine, imagine doing that 300 times and finding the single egg every single time. Listen, that is what we understand about all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It was improbable. It was improbable. And Jesus accomplished all of these things. And Paul says, look at the fulfilled prophecy. Look at all these things that were prophesied about Jesus that he actually fulfilled. And he's given those things to us so that we can believe in who he is. We can believe in what is written and said about him. 
The first evidence we have is fulfilled prophecy, but there's a second evidence. It's eyewitness accounts. This is kind of a big portion of this text. He says in verse 5, that the resurrected Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's also the name of the apostle Peter, and then to the 12 disciples. Now what do we know about Peter? Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Uh, so Jesus trained Peter for three years, but Peter was kind of a coward, right? Peter didn't have much courage. In fact, when Jesus was arrested and being tried to be sentenced to death, remember what happened with Peter? He's standing off in the distance, and three times, three times when Jesus needed him most, he denied even knowing Jesus. Peter was a bit of a coward. But something happened to Peter. Because after he saw the resurrected Jesus, he was transformed from a coward into a courageous and bold leader. Someone who gave his life to preach about the resurrection. In fact, Peter, as well as the rest of the disciples, you know what happened to them? They died very gruesome deaths because they said, I'm going to continue to stand for the resurrection. I'm not going to recant my testimony. It is true. And they went and they gave their lives for that cause of the resurrection. There's more eyewitnesses than just Peter and the disciples, though. Verse 6 says, Then the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 brothers at one time. Which means Jesus, when he was resurrected, he wasn't hiding. He was, he was out in public. He wanted people to see him. Which means if we could understand it in our day and age, Jesus, his resurrection would have been trending on Twitter. We would have seen it on social media. Like, like Jesus says, I want people to see me. In fact, Paul says to those Corinthians, he says, listen, many of those 500 brothers who saw the resurrected Jesus, they're still alive today. You could actually go and ask them, hey, tell me what happened. It goes even beyond that. Verse 7 says, Then the resurrected Jesus, he appeared to James, uh, then all the apostles. Let me ask you this. How many of you guys have brothers? You got siblings? Most of us have some siblings to some capacity. Listen, how many of you would worship your brother as God? Anybody? Anybody? Yes, I heard you back there. See, Jesus, Jesus had two brothers. Uh, a brother by the name of James. A brother by the name of, uh, of Judas, uh, Jude. James and Jude. i got to get the right names here. There we go. I preach for a living. Uh, and they're hearing Jesus do his whole ministry. And Jesus says, I'm the son of God. You know, I I'm going to be resurrected. And you know what his brothers thought? They thought, you're insane. Like, we grew up with you. We gave you wet willies and wedgies. There's no way you're the son of God. There's no way you're the sinless son of God. What do you think it would take? What do you think it would take for you to worship your brother. Some extraordinary evidence. And when Jesus rose from the grave and he appeared to James and he appeared to Jude, they went, whoa, whoa, wait a second. We went to his funeral. We saw his grave. And now he's here with us now. They're like, it's real. And at that point, his brothers after the resurrection... Man, they worship Jesus as the Son of God. His brothers became pastors of churches. They wrote books of the New Testament because they saw the resurrected Jesus. There's more, one more eyewitness. Verse 8, Paul says, Last of all, the resurrected Jesus appeared to me. Now, Paul 
He was not an acquaintance of Jesus. He was not a friend of Jesus. He was actually an enemy of Jesus. In fact, we are introduced to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 7, a story where there's a Christian leader by the name of Stephen who's going to be murdered brutally in front of a bunch of people. And you know what Paul's doing? Paul is there holding the jackets of those who are going to murder Stephen. Paul hated Christians. He hated Christianity. He was sent by the authorities to go and arrest and persecute Christians. Until one day on the road to Damascus, he is confronted by the resurrected Jesus. And at that point, Paul is radically transformed from from a, a murderer of Christians to becoming a pastor of Christians. And Paul began to preach about the resurrection of Jesus and gave his life to telling the story of how Jesus rose from the grave. Paul was a man who was shipwrecked and homeless and beaten and left for dead, impoverished on the run and put in prison because he would not stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus. You have all these eyewitnesses saying, Jesus, we saw him. We saw the resurrected Jesus in flesh and blood. Now again, I want to play a little bit of a skeptic here because we've got these eyewitness stories. The question I want to ask is, well, what if they're all lying? Is it possible that all these people who claim to see Jesus, is it possible that they were lying? It's possible. But here's the thing. If you lie, typically there's a reason for your lie, right? Typically you're going to lie because it's going to benefit you in some way. So you lie maybe to get out of trouble. You lie because maybe you feel like I can get some fame or some glory or some power or some influence. And so you lie for a reason. But the disciples and followers of Jesus, these guys, these guys face shame and disgrace and suffering and poverty. And many of them face death. Why? Because they stood for the truth. They stood what they knew to be true. They said, we saw the resurrected Jesus. We can't recant our testimony, even if it costs us our life, because it is true. See, something happened. Something happened to all those who witnessed the resurrection. They were transformed in an incredible way. The power of the resurrection, it it made the cowardly people brave. It made the skeptical into believers It made made the haters of Jesus into worshipers of Jesus. It made the followers of Jesus so brave that they could face death with joy because they knew it was real. And here we are. We're 2,000 years later. Do you realize there are millions and millions of smart, intelligent people who are gathered just like us today to worship the resurrection? This is what we're doing. The Charismatics, they're shouting about it. The Pentecostals, they're dancing about it. The Baptists, They're nodding their heads about it. The Presbyterians are writing it. The Episcopalians are toasting it because the resurrection is real. That is what we're here to celebrate today, the resurrection. So often what happens is we look at religion and we think religion is all about preference. It's all about my my preference. Well, I prefer Christianity over something else. And Paul says, listen, Christianity is not about preference. Christianity is not about my preference. In fact, in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul gets arrested and is on, on trial for his life. And this is what he says. He says, the resurrection is not about my preference. It's not about preference. He said, I, Paul, before the authority said, I didn't want to believe in the resurrection. It was against everything I lived for. 
It shattered my worldview. Paul says, it destroyed my prospects for the future. I lost everything. But he said, I'm before you now because I know the resurrection is real because I have seen the resurrected Jesus. That is the gospel. That is the good news for us. That Jesus has rose from the grave. It is what is first important for us as Christians. It is what first important for Restoration Church, for the church in general, is all about the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The question then becomes, great, that's the resurrection. What does it have to do with me? What does that mean for me today? Three things that the resurrection means for us. Number one, it means that my sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven. This is what Paul said in verse 3. Christ died for our sins. See, Jesus, he had a purpose on coming to the earth. It was to do what you and I could not do for ourselves, which is to free us from our sins. Which means that Jesus, he lived, he lived a perfect life. He didn't deserve penalty. He didn't deserve condemnation. But Jesus went in our place to take our penalty upon himself, to take our condemnation on on himself, in our place. But the problem is, most of us, we we don't see ourselves in need of a Savior. We don't see ourselves as sinners. At best, we may say things like this. We say things like, well, you know, I had a lapse of judgment. You know, I I made a mistake once, but, you know, I'm really a good person. I'm really a good person, fundamentally. I'm not a bad person who deserves hell. My good probably outweighs my bad. That's what we say about ourselves. The Apostle Paul, man, that's not what he said about himself. He was quite the opposite. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is a guy who wrote Bible. He wrote Bible saying, I'm the chief sinner. I don't know about you, but I'm going to guess I'm probably a little worse off than Paul. I'm going to guess I'm just a little more of a sinner than Paul. I didn't write no Bible. Do you recognize your need for forgiveness? Do you recognize that you are a sinner? In fact, let's do this right now. Let's, let's do a little thing here. We're in church. You're supposed to be honest in church, right? You're supposed to be honest in church? Let's do this. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question. Uh, if you've ever told a lie, just slip your hand up. You ever told a lie? Slip your hand up. All right, listen, if you are not slipping your hand up, you are proving yourself to be a liar. You are guilty as charged. That's just between you and the Lord, though. That's just between you and the Lord. Listen, if you've ever told a lie, what does that make you? Let's call it like it is. You ever told a lie? It makes you a liar. You're a bold-faced liar. And guess what? So am I. So am I. And we could go through the Ten Commandments and see the same thing. You see, the Ten Commandments, we often think about the Ten Commandments. They're a list of rules we're supposed to follow to be good people. You know why we have the Ten Commandments? To show us that we can't be good enough. The Ten Commandments are there to show us that we are sinners, that we lie, that we, are, we have idols, that we worship the wrong things, that we covet, that we get angry. We have the Ten Commandments to show us that we are sinners in need of grace. And this is what the gospel says. This is what the gospel is all about. That Jesus dying on the cross, he paid our penalty for our sin so that God can forgive us. And the resurrection, the resurrection is Jesus saying, I accept the sacrifice of Jesus in your place. That is the good news. Because of the resurrection, 
our sins can be forgiven. The second thing that the resurrection means for us is that our present, our right here, our today can be transformed. You know, as a pastor, one of the questions people ask is, can people really change? Can people really change? In fact, you listen to all the talk shows. Aren't, aren't they, isn't that what they're asking, Dr. Phil? Isn't what all the self-help books are about? Can people really change? Can cruel people be made kind? Can selfish people be made loving? Can a cheater become faithful? Can an abusive person become a tender person? Can people truly change? And Paul says, you know what? Without a doubt, without a doubt, I know from a personal experience that people can change. Here's what he says in verse 9. He says, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I previously persecuted the church of God. He said, I'm not worthy to, become, to be called a child of God because I'm a sinner. Because I'm a sinner. But verse 10 he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is who I was by the grace of God. This is who I am now. See, Christianity is not about us turning over a new life. It's not about us making some resolutions and trying harder to make our lives a little bit better. Christianity is not us trying to think better about how we see ourselves. That just trivializes the power of the resurrection. What the resurrection does is it changes our heart. It makes us new. It gives us a new heart and a new identity. The power of the gospel is it gives us what we always have longed for. The peace, the acceptance, the love, the healing, the things that we long for deep in our heart. And in turn, it makes us a person who then is able to love and forgive and to trust other people once again. In fact, I, this past summer, I listened to a TED Talk by Brene Brown. Maybe you're familiar with Brene Brown. She talks a lot about vulnerability. And in this TED Talk, she was talking about one of the keys to success. And I'm like, I want to succeed. I want to be great. I want to, I want to accomplish some things. And she said, you know, you need, you need skill. Yeah, you need, you need these things. But she said one of the keys to success is vulnerability. Why is that? Because most of us, if we're being honest, we often fear what other people think about us. We fear failure. We fear not being enough. We fear other people seeing our faults. And what Brene Brown would say is we cannot be transformed without uh, being vulnerable, without exposing ourselves, putting yourselves out there. Think about the power of that. That it's through our vulnerability between God of saying, God, I'm broken. God, I can't figure it all out. God, I can't, I, I screw this up at times. And when we are vulnerable to God, that's where the power of the resurrection comes and redeems and restores and fixes some of those things. It's, it's so powerful to think about us being vulnerable before God. But I'm listening to this TED Talk and I'm like, this is great talking about vulnerability. And then she comes to the end of the TED Talk, the last two minutes, and she's gonna say, here's the solution. Here's how you grow in your vulnerability. She said, all you have to do is to believe in yourself. Just look in the mirror and say, if nobody else believes in you, I believe in me. And I'm like, no, what a terrible answer. What a, what, what a horrible answer. Because I don't know about you, but there's times I look in the mirror and I'm like, I don't believe in me. I screwed it all up. I made a mess of the situation again. 
The answer is not us believing in ourselves. The answer is us looking at the mirror and saying, Christ believes in me. Christ believes. He took my shame. He, he erased my sin. He has made me someone different. He can take my mess and turn it into a message. That's what the power is. That when we can be vulnerable before God, we can experience the power of his resurrection to redeem and restore. But he takes our mess and turns it into a message. And when we can be vulnerable before God, that's where we allow ourselves to receive his grace, to receive his love, which in turn gives us the ability to extend that grace and love to other people. This is where hope is found. This is where hope is found, when we can be vulnerable before God. Say, God, I don't have it all together. I'm, I'm, I'm messing up. But God, here's what I've got. God, would you redeem it? God, would you use it? That's the power of the resurrection to transform our present. There's one more thing the power of the resurrection does for us. It secures our future. Our future can be secure. See, we talked a little bit about this last week. I mean, can we, can we agree this world is not all as it should be? There's a lot of broken things that we face. Hard and difficult things. Pain, depression, addiction, divorce, health struggles, all sorts of temptations, racism. We face all sorts of things in our world. But here's the great news. If Jesus really rose from the grave, that means that he has entered into his kingdom and he's preparing a place for us. And he's going to come again to restore his kingdom. A kingdom, a kingdom where there is no sin. There is no darkness. There is no brokenness. There is no pain. There is no mourning. There is no temptation. All things will be made right. And that is our future. That we may suffer in the moment. We may struggle in the moment. But we have hope because we know our future is great. We know what's coming is so much better than anything we have on this earth. In fact, just a uh, little over a week ago, my son Oliver had an accident on a dirt bike and uh, was riding his dirt bike out on our property and found a divot and the bike turned over and he went flying off and, and landed on his, on his face. And uh, we take him into the ER and we're not sure what to expect. And, and uh, they said, your son's jaw is broken here and here and uh, he's just in pain. There's blood coming places, and they said, we need to send him in an ambulance to Harborview because he's going to have to have some major work done. And we're sitting in the ER waiting for an ambulance, and he's got wires hooked up everywhere. He's just been in, in, in pain. And it's late at night, and he's laying there, and he'd fallen asleep. And I'll be honest, I'm sitting there feeling really sorry for myself. I'm afraid because I don't know what the next couple days is going to hold. But I see my son laying there and I'm just, to be honest, I just couldn't pray. A hard time asking God for help. And I'm watching my son and all of a sudden he wakes up. He starts singing a song. He says, I'm going to sing in the middle of a storm 
See, the lyrics of that song say, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you're going to hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes, hope will arise because death is defeated and the king is alive. I can't tell you how challenged I was. I hear my son is facing all of this and his hope is secure. He knows, he knows it was bad, no matter how bad this is right now, there's something greater in front of him. See, knowing our future is secure, man, it gives us power in the moment. It gives us hope in the moment that this pain and the suffering we go through is momentary. It's a moment where we don't have to fear because we know our future is secure. We know what our future holds. And it's so much greater than anything we can experience right here. The reality is, the resurrection of Jesus is the truth that totally transforms our present and our future. The resurrection of Jesus is a truth that can transform your present and your future. The question is, how do you respond? How do you respond? Will you receive it? Will you believe it? Will you allow this truth to truly transform your present and secure your future? Here's how you do it. Paul gave us the answer in verse 1 and 2. He said, brothers, I remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you have received, on which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. That's what he says. He says we have to receive it. We have to stand on it. Listen, there's many of us here, and we've made that decision. We maybe came to church at one point. We prayed a prayer. And we said, Jesus, I want to receive you. We're going to give you an opportunity today. If you have not, we invite you to make that decision today. But Paul says something important. He said, you have to hold fast to it. See, I got this chair right here. We can look at this chair and say, I received this chair. I love this chair. This is a great chair. I'm a part of the chair. The chair's with me. I love this chair. But it's something else to actually trust in the chair. To actually say, I trust this chair, and I'm going to actually sit on it. And actually put my faith in it. And hold fast to it. And say, I am anchoring my life on this chair. It's different just to say, I like the chair. I choose the chair versus not the chair. It's something completely different for us to hold fast and actually jump in and embrace it. I just want to ask you this morning. Some of us today, we need to make that decision. To trust God as our Savior. To trust and what Jesus has done in our place. God is calling you. Today is the day he's calling you into a relationship with him. I also recognize there are some of us here, we've been out of church for a while. Maybe it's been a long time. We've gone through some hard stuff. Maybe we've faced some disappointment, some frustration. Let me say the church is not a perfect place. But who we are, 
is a group of people trying to center our lives around the power of the resurrection. I'm saying today might be the day for you to no longer say, I like the chair. I love the chair. Today may be the day for you to say, I'm jumping in. I'm jumping into Jesus. I'm jumping in. I'm going to give my life to this. I'm going to hold fast to it. Allow it to transform my present as well as my future. Would you bow your heads with me?